Welcome to the Faith Lakeside Podcast. Each week you'll hear another great message that will help you know God and make Him known in your life. Join us each Sunday at 1045 a.m. and throughout the week in small groups to make the most of your learning experiences. Now, sit back, relax with a great cup of coffee and a notebook and enjoy this week's message. And next Sunday we will, uh, just like today, be continuing our Glory and Redemption series in which we're looking through the Old Testament and seeing how God has been at work revealing His glory to us and preparing the way for redemption over and over again. And we kind of left at the end of Numbers last week just understanding how God's people, he, he had brought them right to the edge of the promised land, and then they essentially rebelled against him and said, we're afraid, we don't want to go. And uh, so Moses, in, in speaking with God, reminded God of his own character and reminds us that the Lord is slow to anger and abounding in faithful love, forgiving iniquity and rebellion. And that is his promise, to forgive, to renew relationship with those who are repentant and will come to him through Christ Jesus, but he will not leave the guilty unpunished, bringing the consequences of the father's iniquity on the children to the third and fourth generation. That we must understand that sin and rebellion against God will continue to have consequences. It has not been erased simply because he provided salvation for those who would believe through Christ Jesus, but rather it's important to understand that the consequences of sin and rebellion are still to be found in this world. And we must be people who walk in repentance and submission to God because our sin has consequences not just for us, but even for our children and our grandchildren and our great-grandchildren. There will be consequences that will be meted out over time. And so once we got through numbers, we kind of get to the, the book of Deuteronomy. If you're flipping through your Bible, you see that's the next one. The, De- the book of Deuteronomy uh, is the book that concludes what's called the Pentateuch in the Old Testament. And you might be wonder, wondering, what's the Pentateuch? Well, Penta is five Tuch writings, five writings of Moses that start the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And they are some of the core teachings of the Jewish faith and of the Old Testament. Deuteronomy, just its name, it literally means the second law. What we find throughout the whole book of Deuteronomy is a little bit of a a refresher course on what the Israelites have gone through, what the children of Israel have walked through. And also, God reiterates his covenants and his rules for what it will look like to live in the promised land. And then at the end of Deuteronomy, we see that Moses dies and that uh, Joshua takes over. And so here's, here's what it tells us about Moses. It says, so Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab, just outside of the promised land, according to the Lord's word. And then it says he, and the he there is God. And so it's so cool as we've, we've interacted a little bit with Moses, we've looked a little bit about his, his life to see how he led the people of Israel. He was, he was flawed. He, he had issues, but he was really a, uh, what we call a type or he set the stage for who would be coming ahead of or behind him. And that was Jesus ultimately. And he had such a deep relationship with God that God led him up to the top of a mountain. He got to see the promised land and all the good that God was going to do in the lives of those that Moses had been leading. And then Moses dies and God himself buries him. What, what, what a great pallbearer, right? To have God himself 
usher you in to eternity. God buried him in the valley in the land of Moab facing Beth Peor, and no one to this day knows where his grave is. Moses was 120 years old when he died. His eyes were not weak, and his vitality had not left him. May it be so for all of us, Lord, that when we see God face to face, that our eyes were not weak and our vitality will not have left us, but instead we get to pass into eternity in strength like Moses. In the passing of Moses, it brings us to the book of Joshua. And we just kind of skipped over all of Deuteronomy, if you were wondering. It's because it's just the repetition of the law. But Joshua continues the, the action. It, it continues to bring us into the, the redemption, the promised glory that God had for his people. And so Joshua takes over leadership from Moses. And then God begins to speak to Joshua and give Joshua the directions for what is to happen next. So next. So if you have your Bibles, do open them up to the book of Joshua, chapter 1. We're beginning in the beginning of Joshua, a very good place to start, right? Uh, as Maria von Trapp would tell us. Um, so we start at the very beginning in Joshua, chapter 1, verse 1. It tells us this. After the death of Moses, the Lord's servant, the Lord spoke to Joshua, son of Nun, Moses' assistant. Moses, my servant, is dead. Now you and all the people prepare to cross over the Jordan to the land I am giving the Israelites. I have given you every place where the sole of your foot treads, just as I promised Moses. Your territory will be from the wilderness and Lebanon to the great river, the Euphrates River, all the land of the Hittites, and west to the Mediterranean Sea. No one will be able to stand against you as long as you live. I will be with you just as I was with Moses. I will not leave you. Or abandon you. And so Joshua, as he begins his leadership of the people of Israel, gets these words of encouragement from God, this affirmation of God's promise. And if you remember Joshua, 40 years ago, he had already been into the promised land. He had already spied it out. He'd seen the huge clusters of grapes and the figs. He had seen the, the land flowing with milk and honey that God was giving to his people. And so Joshua is one of only two people who have actually been into and seen the promised land at this point, Caleb being the other one. And so Joshua has got to be getting excited that we're finally going, we're finally going to be there after 40 years of wandering as punishment for their rebellion against God when they were right on the verge of going into the promised land before. Now they were there again and it was time to actually do it. And then God actually gives uh, Joshua not just encouragement, but actually a couple of commands. In verses 6 and 7 and 8 and 9, actually, here's what God says. Verse, verse 6, God says, Be strong and courageous, for you will distribute the land I swore to their ancestors to give them as an inheritance. Now we look and, and that be strong and courageous. A lot of us think that was probably like, when we read that, we think, well, that's an encouragement, right? So be strong and courageous. Trust in me. What's interesting is when we read in the original language, be strong and courageous is a command from God. God is telling Joshua, be strong and courageous. And those words, strong and courageous, they feel like a little bit like repetition because they are. They're two different words in the Hebrew, but both of them have similar meetings. And it is to, to stand firm. It's to, 
to be strong, it is to be hardened in your beliefs. And so God is commanding Joshua, I want you to be resolute in this. I don't want you to give up. I want you to be so convinced that this is true that you will hold on to it and fight for it with your very life. Be strong and courageous. Not an encouragement, but a command. And then, here's the encouragement. For, if you undergird yourself, if you will be resolved, if you will be dedicated and determined, you will distribute the land I swore to their ancestors to give them as an inheritance. In other words, I'm going to fulfill my promises through you, Joshua, if you will be strong and courageous. And then God says this to him. First, be strong and courageous because you're going to do great things. And then he says this, above all. In other words, this is even more important. Be strong and very courageous. I am commanding you to be resolute, to be firm, to be extra dedicated to this job, to observe carefully the whole instruction my servant Moses commanded you. So first God says, I want you to be so dedicated to my promises that I'll be able to work through you and distribute my promises. But then, even more important, I want you to be so dedicated to my law that you'll be obedient to it. And, and it's interesting that God equates the difficulty of battle and war and conquering land with the difficulty of obedience. God is, is, is telling Caleb, Caleb or excuse me, Joshua, I'm giving you two jobs. The first job is go be a warrior. And the second job is fight for my truth. And, and they're equated in, in their difficulties. And in fact, the one that's most important to God is to be obedient. Do not turn from it to the right or the left so that you will have success wherever you go. God is telling Joshua, in fact, the fulfillment of the first promise is dependent upon your ability to live out this command. This book of instruction must not depart from your mouth. You are to meditate on it day and night so that you may carefully observe, every, observe everything written in it. For then you will prosper and succeed in whatever you do. God says, the most important and likely even most difficult job for you, Joshua, and for all the people of Israel, is not to go into the land and conquer it, but instead to conquer your own rebellious hearts and submit yourselves to my law. And isn't it interesting, we can, we can look at our own lives, we can look at our culture today and say, you know what, sometimes it's really easy to go in and take over a room, but it's much more difficult to squash the rebellion in our own hearts, to quell our own evil desires. And this is the task that God has given Joshua, both to take over the land and to live according to his law. Verse 9, haven't I commanded you, be strong and courageous? Listen, here's what I'm telling you. Be resolute, be firm, be dedicated. Do not be afraid or discouraged, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. How can we be strong and and courageous. How can we avoid fear? Well, according to what God tells Joshua here, it's because God is with us. And so 
Joshua and the people of Israel, they come up to the border of this promised land. And this is a picture that kind of shows the scope of what God has promised and reiterated the promise here in the beginning of Joshua. This is the land that he had given his people, all of it here in green. And most of us, if we have any kind of geography sense, we see this is the, the Middle East. This is the area of modern Israel. We can see the Sea, uh, the sea of Galilee up in the north, the Dead Sea down uh, near the south end. And, and there is this huge expanse that God has promised to his people. And he tells Joshua, all you've got to do is march in and I'm going to give it to you. But you've got to do the marching before I'm ready to do the giving. And you've got to be faithful in order for your marching to be successful. Now, to, to come in a little tighter, just to see, this is actually the area that most of us focus on and understand to be Israel, is that, that smaller area between the, the, the bottom of the Dead Sea and the Sea of Galilee up in the north. If I were to kind of draw a line, this is what we understand to be modern Israel. And this is actually the majority of this territory is what ends up being Israel throughout the history in the Old Testament. And this is the area that the children of Israel are focused on. And what's interesting is this area to the east of the Jordan River and the two seas, they had already captured most of it, according to what we see in Deuteronomy. And two and a half of the tribes actually decided to settle on that eastern side of the, the, the uh, Jordan River because they thought the land was just perfect for them. And it was part of God's allotment to them as the people of Israel. But the rest of the folks, all of the nation of Israel, they were camped out right where you see the star. Uh, here at the beginning of the book of Joshua, they're just across the Jordan River, just north and east of the Dead Sea. Millions of people camped out with 600,000 fighting men ready to begin to go into that smaller area inside the white line and to begin marching through it and taking it over according to God's promises. And so just prior to beginning the conquest of the promised land, Joshua decides to send a couple of spies in to scout out the city of Jericho, which was just across the Jordan River from where they were staying and was likely the most fortified city of its day. And so he sends spies across and they go in, they, they kind of get caught a little bit, they freak out, they get hidden by a woman named Rahab who happens to also be a, not just a pagan who lives in Jericho, but also a prostitute. And uh, so her, you know, resume is not really the top of the line for helping out God's people, and yet she does. She hides the spies she keeps them safe. She sends them on their way safely. And she asks of them to save her family when it comes time for the Israelites to invade Jericho. Because the rumors that had been going on in Jericho were that God's people were coming. And they had already conquered huge swaths of land. And God, the one true God, was giving the land to them. And so Jericho knew that their time was ticking down slowly. Rahab understood that God was going to give the Israelites the city of Jericho. And she asks in return for helping these two spies that her family might be saved. 
Now she lived in, a, in an apartment right on the outside wall, and so she lowers the spies down, tells them where to hide and how long, and they end up returning to the people of Israel and let Joshua know everything that happens. Now, between the Israelites and the city of Jericho, there's still the River Jordan. And chapter 3, verse 1 through the end of chapter 4 gives us a picture of what happens as the Israelites cross the Jordan River. Now, the Jordan River, it says at this time of year, it swelled up, its banks would overflow because of the rains. But as soon as the priests who were carrying the Ark of the Covenant set foot in the Jordan River, as soon as they reached it and their feet got wet, the water flowing downstream stood still. In other words, God did a miracle, but it was waiting to happen based upon the faithfulness of his people. What's interesting is we go back all the way to the last time the Israelites crossed a large body of water. And uh, when God made the Red Sea split and the ground dry, no one had to set foot in it. Moses simply raised his staff and God did the miracle. This time, the miracle was dependent upon God's people being faithful to his command. So it took priests stepping in the water. Wouldn't that be kind of freaky? You're carrying this big golden box that's maybe a little heavy on poles, and you're tasked with carrying it across the river. But wait a minute, it's wet. Like very wet. God's going to make it dry. Okay. And it happened as soon as they stepped foot in the water. It, it, the water stops flowing downstream. It's, the scripture says it rose up in a mass that extended as far as Adam, a city next to Zarathon. The water flowing downstream into the sea of the Arabah, the Dead Sea, was completely cut off and the people crossed opposite Jericho. The priest carrying the Ark of the Lord's Covenant stood firmly on dry ground in the middle of the Jordan while all Israel crossed on dry ground until the entire nation had finished crossing the Jordan. This act of faith by the priests and the people of Israel as they carry the Ark of the Covenant into the swollen Jordan River, which would take their lives easily. Instead, God does a miracle. He piles the water up, and not only do they just walk across uh, no flowing water, instead it says, what, the ground is dry. Isn't, I mean, just amazing. A lot of us, we've been to, you know, a creek and stuff, and you can imagine the water stopping, and yet there would still be enough muck and mud at the base of that creek to take your boots, you know, to steal your shoes. But God did a miracle. He didn't just stop the water up. He dried the ground, and his, his people crossed on dry ground. The whole nation of Israel crosses the Jordan River that day. Chapter 4 tells us that... God commanded his people to gather up stones from the middle of the dry river, one for each tribe, and to build a memorial on the other side of the Jordan River. So that every time his people saw the memorial, verse 24 says, This is so that all the peoples of the earth may know that the Lord's hand is strong, and so that you may always fear the Lord your God. God did all of this. God brought his people across on dry land, not simply for the fact of getting them across the Jordan River, but in a miraculous way so that they would know that he is strong, so that they would understand always that he is to be feared 
and honored and reverenced in all that they do. And so we have a, another experience here in chapter 5. They celebrate Passover together. And many of you remember that God had been providing food for them every morning. Manna. It says, The day after Passover they ate unleavened bread from the roasted grain, and roasted grain from the produce of the land. And the day after they ate from the produce of the land, the manna ceased. Since there was no more manna for the Israelites, they ate from the crops of the land of Canaan that year. God had provided everything they needed for 40 years until he brings them into the promised land, and then he provided everything they needed through the fruits of the land. So God's faithfulness was sure. God continues to meet needs. And then begins the story of the taking of Jericho. If you are following along in your Bible, chapter 5, verses 13 through chapter 6, verse 27, we see this. So right here, just, just as they're getting ready to begin to, to go fight at Jericho, Verse 13 tells us, When Joshua was near Jericho, he looked up and saw a man standing in front of him with a drawn sword in his hand. Joshua approached him and asked, Are you for us or for our enemies? And so Joshua looks up, sees a guy coming at him with a sword. Can you imagine? He's, he's freaking out about this big city, a huge wall, one of the most fortified cities in the area from what archaeologists can tell us. And Joshua's wondering what, what's going to happen, how they're going to take over Jericho. And then all of a sudden, a guy dressed to the hilt with his sword drawn comes walking up. And Joshua just freaks out. Who, wait a minute, who are you for? Are you on my side or are you on their side? Here's what the, the person says. Neither, he replied. I have now come as commander of the Lord's army. Then Joshua bowed with his face to the ground in homage and asked him, What does my Lord want to say to his servant? It's this beautiful picture. As, as Joshua, the leader of the Israelites, he's beginning to try and figure out how are they going to make this happen? How are they going to take over Jericho? All of a sudden this man appears and has a drawn sword. Joshua's, who's he for? I'm not for you and I'm not for your enemies. I'm here for the Lord. It's an interesting, interesting thing, isn't it? I mean, Joshua's just like, I'm ready for God to save me. I'm ready for God to give me direction. He's for us, right? He's on our side. No, God is on his side. God is for his glory. God is fighting for his name. But he also happens to be using the children of Israel to make that happen. And so this angel of the Lord, who many think was probably a pre-incarnate Christ, a Christophany, Arriving, pointing the way, and revealing to Joshua exactly how they needed to defeat Jericho. Now, many of us, uh, anybody seen VeggieTales much? They did not throw slushies from the top of the walls of Jericho, just so you know. Uh, they were not French peas in Jericho. But Jericho was substantial. It was, like I mentioned before, one of the most fortified cities in this era, in this area. And here's what the wall of Jericho likely looked like in cross-section. The walls were huge. And Jericho had, was built on, a, on a, uh, the top of a hill itself, but also down the sides there were uh, embankments that were built up, a retaining wall and then a stone and brick wall on top of that, and then a, a, an area about 30 feet wide 
with another wall at the top of that. And so you can look at this, and for scale, there's some little tiny people down at the bottom on the right there. You can see this is a substantial wall. Now, many of us, we, we grew up in Sunday school. We remember the stories of, and they used to race chariots on the tops of the walls of Jericho. Anybody hear that one in Sunday school? Yeah, that's a lie. Um, we don't even know where that came from. It's one of those fun Christian myths that somebody preached once in error, and then it never got corrected. Uh, there were, as far as we can tell, no chariot races that could happen on the walls of Jericho because the walls actually weren't that thick, you can see, but the, the whole system was quite substantial. Difficult. And what normally has to happen here is if you're going to take on a city, and when we talk about cities, it's, it's a walled dwelling like this, only about 2,000 people, they think, lived inside Jericho. Maybe up to 10,000. But you're going to take on a city like this, usually the task was to just starve them for years. It could take two or three years to defeat a walled city in this era. Unless you were really good at building up ramps of dirt, or there was a secret way in that nobody knew about but you, cities were very difficult to defeat. And so this city of Jericho where Rahab lived, where these spies went in, they knew its strengths. They knew it was going to be difficult. They knew that it really was almost impossible. And yet the angel of the Lord, the commander of the Lord's army, begins to give Joshua the plan. And here's what he tells Joshua. Starting in verse 3. March around the city with all the men of war, circling the city one time. Do this for six days. Have seven priests carry seven ram's horn trumpets in front of the ark. But on the seventh day, march around the city seven times while the priests blow the ram's horns. When there is a prolonged blast of the horn and you hear its sound, have all the troops give a mighty shout. Then the city wall will collapse and the troops will advance each man straight ahead. Here's the plan that the angel of the Lord, the commander of the Lord's army gives. Six days march around Jericho. Just one time, blow some horns, take the priests and the ark with you, but don't say a word. And then on the seventh day, march around seven times, lots of horns, but silently. And then finally, when the horns go crazy and there's one big long shout, or excuse me, one big long blast of the horns, then everybody yell, and that's how you'll win. Doesn't that sound great? I mean, it, Joshua, the Israelites, they had to have been expecting fierce battles and, and, and days and weeks and months of sieging this city and starving the people out slowly. And instead, what God tells them is, just march around. And then march around seven times one day, blow some horns and yell, and I'm going to give you the victory. How awesome. How cool is that? And yet, how ridiculous, too. It doesn't make a lick of sense. It, it, it doesn't... It, it just That's not how you beat a city. That's not how you win. You don't march around and yell. That's what idiots do. And yet, here's what God is telling His people. Do something that doesn't seem to make sense, and I'll give you... The victory. A little bit later in chapter 6, after they are obedient and they walk around six times, 
uh, through six days, and then seven times the seventh day. After the seventh time, the priests blew the ram's horns, and Joshua said to the troops, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city. Verse 20 goes to tell, on to tell us, So the troops shouted, and the ram's horns sounded. When they heard the blast of the ram's horns, the troops gave a great shout, and the wall collapsed. The troops advanced into the city, each man straight ahead, and they captured the city. What even archaeologists tell us what happened to Jericho when it was finally defeated was that both of the walls, both top and bottom of the berm, collapsed down and out and provided a ramp for the conquering armies to walk straight up into Jericho and seize the city. And so it, it's not even some sort of like they, they were there for months, they built all these siege works. No, God did all the work and provided the victory in moments because they followed his commands by faith. Because they did what was ridiculous in order to be faithful to what God told them. And so they are able to, to watch both of these walls collapse down and outward. And they, they run right up as though they had made siege ramps themselves. And they were given the victory right there in that moment. And here's what it also says to us. As they're taking over and washing over Jericho in order to destroy everything which was God's command. The young men who had scouted went in and brought out Rahab and her father, mother, brothers, and all who belonged to her. They brought out her whole family and settled them outside the camp of Israel. And it tells us, Joshua spared Rahab the prostitute, her father's family, and all who belonged to her, because she hid the messengers Joshua had sent to spy on Jericho. And she still lives in Israel today. Not today, today, but when this was written today. And so, so we, see, we see the Israelites, they do what is ridiculous in order to be faithful and God gives the victory. Rahab, a pagan prostitute, does what do, things that don't make any sense. She, she harbors the enemy. She, she submits herself to their graces and mercy. And God is faithful and saves her and makes her part of his people. And so we see that, that when God's people are faithful, when, when others are faithful, that God blesses and God gives victory and God gives new territory and new standing. Now what's crazy is, is God had commanded the Israelites to destroy everything inside Jericho. All of the people, all of the animals, that nothing was to be taken out of Jericho save for the silver and gold, which was to be dedicated to God. And then one of the guys gets a bright idea Saves a few things for himself. His name was Achan. Right after they have this huge victory in Jericho, they go on to a place called Ai. And because one man and his family had stolen some things, had not been faithful to God's command, the Israelites are defeated at Ai. They, they deal with this theft. They deal with this man and his family. They judge him. He is consumed and then, right after the sin is dealt with in their camp, they go right back into Ai, and they win. So we see just how critical faithfulness is. 
we see just how critical it is to follow God's word. Because God is telling them, if you are faithful, you will be blessed and I will give you what I promised. But if you are unfaithful, if you are disobedient, you will experience defeat. We see it happen here at, at, at AI. Both the, the judgment and the victory after repentance. The book of Joshua continues to, to unfold. And by the time we get to Joshua chapter 11, it says that Joshua took the entire land in keeping with all that the Lord had told Moses. Joshua then gave it as an inheritance to Israel according to their tribal allotments. After this, the land had rest from war. And then the remainder of the book of Joshua begins to tell us of the areas that were conquered and who went on to live in each area from each of the tribes of Israel. And so Joshua has served his part here. He's led his people faithfully. And we see him be strong and courageous. And every place he stepped, God brought victory. But we also see him be strong and very courageous. And he was faithful to, the, to God's word. He was faithful to the commands of God. And so we see him given victory and peace for a long time because of his faithfulness. And because of the faithfulness of the people of Israel. So now we look and we say, okay, what, what great stories. What, what awesome stuff. As we watch God just reveal his glory. He's getting people across rivers on dry land. He's tearing down walls and giving victory. He's giving to the people of Israel every place where they walk in faithfulness. We see God's glory. We see his redemption brought upon those who would come to him in faith in the story of Rahab, a woman who had no right to be part of God's promise and yet was welcomed in when she submitted her life to obedience to God's word. And so we see just this, this beautiful unfolding of glory and redemption. So how do we, how do we bring it home for us? Well, there, there are lessons to be learned here. It's important for you to understand that in life, God has promised us things. God has promised us to, to provide, to give us peace. But victory in the areas of promise will always require faithful works on the part of believers. Your salvation comes by faith, through grace. It's, it's only in the cross of Christ and belief on Him as your Lord and Savior that you experience salvation. But when you want victory and you want the promises of God to come to pass in your life, it requires faithful works. It requires taking those steps of faith like the priests did when they stepped into the Jordan River and God did the miracle like He promised. It takes those steps of faith. Like sometimes it's, it's not even an instantaneous thing, right? But, but walking around a city for six days one time and then seven times the seventh day and then just screaming out loud and God gives the victory. That, that we as believers, when we want to see victory occur in our lives over certain circumstances and sins and struggles, it takes faithful works on our part. We can't just sit back and go, I believe God, why don't you do that? I mean, can you imagine the children of Israel? They're sitting on the other side of the Jordan River and they just sit on their carts and say, all right, God, you do it. We believe you're big enough. 
when God had told them, get up, walk, go, do, shout, and I'll give it to you. How foolish is it to just sit on your cart and wait when God says, get up and go. It's so easy to say, God, we demand of you, we require of you, we ask of you, you said you would, while being unfaithful and not doing the good works he's made us for. But when we do these faithful works, when we walk in the way that he's established for us, we will be blessed, just like he said to Joshua. Be strong and courageous. Be resolute. Be dedicated. Set your, 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 your mind as though it were stone and say, this is who I will be by the power of God and the grace of the Holy Spirit. Be strong and courageous, for what I have promised will come to pass. James chapter 2 if you want to flip over to that and just look at James chapter 2 with me. Verses 14 through 16. James, the brother of Jesus, half-brother of Jesus. Same, uh, same mom, different dads. <laughs> um, James chapter 2, verses 14 through 16. Here's what Jesus' brother James writes. He says, What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but does not, does not have works, can such faith save him? If a brother or sister is without clothes and lacks daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, stay warm, and be well fed, but you don't give them what the body needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith, if it does not have works, is dead by itself. But someone will say, You have faith, and I have works. Show me your faith without works, and I will show you my, uh, faith by my works. You believe that God is one good. Even the demons believe, and they shudder. Senseless person, are you willing to learn that faith without works is useless? Wasn't Abraham our father justified by works in offering Isaac his son on the altar? You see that faith was active together with his works, and by works faith was made complete. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. And he was called God's friend. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. In verse 25, he introduces us once again to one of our favorite pagan prostitutes. In the same way, wasn't Rahab the prostitute also justified by works in receiving the messengers and sending them out by a different route? Just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. We need to be dedicated to doing the things that God has called us to if we want to experience the victory that he's promised. And sometimes the things that God calls us to sound ridiculous, like marching around a city and then shouting. But when we're faithful to even the ridiculous of the commands and the things that he's called us to, he will bring the victory. So victory, it requires faithful works, but what is even more difficult sometimes is obedience. In fact, uh, on the slide I said it's just as difficult, sometimes more difficult, a battle than war, and it requires the same kind of faith. And, and what's the difference? Well, works is the good things we do because we're saved. Obedience is walking rightly with God in righteousness in all things. To follow His word, to walk in His commands. Above all, be strong and very courageous. To observe carefully the whole instruction to my servant Moses commanded you. Be strong and very courageous to take the whole counsel of God and seek to live it faithfully. 
to take everything that is God, say, has, God has said and, and to take it at his word and to, to walk in it faithfully. Now, the Apostle Paul, though, says this isn't easy. Romans chapter 7. The whole of Romans chapter 7 really is this, the last half of it, is this discourse that Paul is having with himself and his sinful nature and the struggle it is to walk in obedience to God's commands. He says, I do not do the good that I want to do, but I practice the evil that I do not want to do. Now, we won't have anybody raise your hand, right? But anybody feel like this is speaking about you? <laughs> I know it does, but it, this is me. This is my struggle. I find myself knowing what I should do, knowing who I should be, knowing how to, how to, knowing how to walk obediently, and yet daily choosing to do otherwise. Struggling and fighting between what should be in my life and what actually is in my life. Now, I don't want anybody to think I've got some sort of secret double life. Shelley can attest that I'm too much of a homebody to make that happen. Right? I'm scared of, of public events and uh, I'm, I'm, you know, just bad enough at relationships I could only ever have one wife. <clears throat> right? I'm not going to be the guy that shows up with two wives. I've had families all over the United States or something. But that, that doesn't mean that just because I don't have the big sins, I don't have the little ones every day that beset me. Selfishness, the anger, the desire to, to have what my neighbor has. I got a sweet above ground pool with a fence. Right, right that, that I find myself daily not doing the good that I want to do, but practicing the evil that I don't want to do, which is why God had to tell Joshua, above all, be strong and very courageous to walk in obedience. This is going to be even harder than battle itself to be obedient. So we see victory requires faithful works, that obedience is just as difficult, if not more difficult, to battle as war. And it's going to require the same kind of faith to walk in obedience. And then the beautiful thing about this whole story is that God can redeem and use anyone. And of course, this all hinges on, on a couple of people. We look at Joshua. Joshua was, was just an apprentice who becomes the leader who God uses mightily, a spy who ends up the general. But we also see the story of Rahab, a pagan prostitute, worshiping a false god, serving a, a, an errant king, living in a city that is, is outside of God's will and facing judgment. And when she repents, when she serves the one true God, God redeems her. And what's amazing about Rahab is it's not just like a little bit of redemption and she got to live a nice life. Here's what's even more miraculous about Rahab. Matthew chapter 1 gives us a genealogy of Jesus, the Christ, the Son of God, the Son of David, the Son of Abraham, tells us who all his ancestors were. And in that list we see Salmon fathered Boaz by Rahab, the pagan prostitute is part of the lineage of Jesus. Her faithfulness, her willingness to, to serve the one true God results in her being part of God's final and greatest promise of redemption. Jesus the Christ, the Son of the living God. How cool is that? 
How awesome is it that God can take even a pagan prostitute in a city awaiting judgment and make her a forebear of Jesus? Our faithfulness will result in things that we can only dream of when we practice the good works in obedience that God has called us to and live the obedient life by grace that he's made us for. And so today, I just want to encourage you as we wrap up our time together. If you are struggling with areas of your life and feeling like you are constantly defeated, I got to tell you, you've got to be strong and courageous. Double down. Get into God's word. Do the good works he's made you for. If you're struggling with obedience in your heart, you find that your desires have not shifted or changed in the way that you long for, be strong and very courageous. Make a choice today to say, this is who I am and who I will be in Christ Jesus, and don't give up. Don't allow it to pass away. Look, the, the, the saddest thing to watch is when we start making excuses why we can't be Christ-like. Well, you know, my, it's my heritage. It's the way I was raised. It's because I just, I like that too much. I can't give it up. Stop it. Be strong and very courageous. Choose to be obedient. And know that when you are obedient, when you walk in faithful works, God can completely redeem and use even someone like you and me. There is no one on the face of this planet when they come to Christ, when they walk in faithful works, when they are obedient to the spiritual truths of God's word, no one who can't be used for great things. And by great things, that doesn't mean you're president or the next like emperor of the world. It means that when you're faithful, God will use you to impact someone else's life. He'll use you to share his gospel. He'll use you to bring new life into someone else's life. So let's close with a word of prayer, remembering these truths that we find in God's word, and then we'll finish our time together with a song. Father God, we are so thankful for your love for us. We're so thankful that you revealed your glory and declared your redemptive desires all throughout scripture especially in this story of the children of Israel who walked in faithfulness following their leader, Joshua. The children of Israel who were willing to do works, good works, that didn't make sense in order to get the victory. The children of Israel who were willing to walk in obedience to your word that they might experience your blessing. And we're so thankful for the story of Rahab. Because it reveals to us in just a few short words that you can use anyone. And that the impact that we'll have when we walk in the salvation that you've given to us can change generations and lives in ways we'll never understand. May it be so for all of us, Lord, that our obedience would increase, that our faithfulness would continue, and that the impact of our lives because of you working through us would be far-reaching in ways we never imagined. Use us to save others. Use us to bring your good news to the world around us. Use us to bless those who are hurting and broken. Use us, Lord, to glorify yourself. Thank you for the redemption that comes to us through Christ Jesus. And it's in his name that we pray this morning.
go back to the beginning Can't control what tomorrow will bring But I know here in the middle Is the place where you promised to Not enough unless you come. Will you meet me here again? Cause all I want is all you are. Will you meet me here again?
not enough unless you come will you meet me here again cause all I Sunday school teachers, see you downstairs here shortly.